Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present John Rainwater, Executive Director of Peace Action, who talks about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and diplomacy being the only path to decrease the danger of escalation to nuclear catastrophe. Lindsay Koshgarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project, who examines President Biden's proposed Pentagon budget, which she asserts prioritizes war and militarization over human need. And John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People, who's calling for the resignation of Attorney General Merrick Garland for his inaction in investigating and prosecuting Donald Trump for his failed January 6th coup attempt. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shaken up France's presidential election campaign as the debate turned to the domestic economy and away from immigrants and culture wars. Incumbent Emmanuel Macron got a boost from his pre-invasion diplomatic efforts with Russian President Vladimir Putin to avert war, but that's begun to fade amid rising public concern over inflation and rising energy prices. Far-right pundit and presidential candidate Eric Zemmour, who once told reporters he dreamed of becoming a French Putin, has fallen into fourth place, while leftist Jean-Luc Mélenchon surged into third place. After Russia's Ukraine invasion, far-right candidate Marine Le Pen tried to prevent the circulation of 1.2 million election pamphlets featuring a photo of her shaking hands with Vladimir Putin. Macron, who won the 2017 election, promising to transform France with a new brand of politics, neither left nor right, is polling at 27% in the first round, followed by Le Pen at about 17%. But Le Pen is gaining ground after campaigning hard on France's cost-of-living increase. However, if Macron faces Le Pen in the final round runoff on April 24th, the result is predicted to be much closer, with one recent poll putting Macron at 53% to Le Pen's 47%. After 17 months of a brutal civil war, the Ethiopian government announced a unilateral truce ostensibly to facilitate the flow of humanitarian aid and end the conflict without further bloodshed. A convoy of trucks carrying food aid arrived in the territory controlled by fighters of the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front on April 1st, the first humanitarian convoy to do so since December. Millions of people in the Tigray region are in desperate need of food aid. The government had refused to contemplate serious dialogue with the Tigrayan rebels, which the Ethiopian parliament had designated a terrorist group. According to Al Jazeera, the federal government was forced to soften its stance due to military fatigue, diplomatic pressure, and the strain on the national economy. There are unconfirmed reports that U.S. Army aircraft made round trips between Mekali and Addis Ababa earlier this month suggesting American mediators may be involved in negotiations. With peace elusive and millions suffering as a result of one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters, the announcement of a truce had been deemed a breakthrough. 
The declaration of bankruptcy by coal giant Black Jewel LLC, the parent company of Revelation Energy, formerly the sixth biggest coal producer in the nation, shook the coal industry nationwide. Instead of working its way through bankruptcy courts, the coal company immediately shut down operations and threw hundreds of coal miners out of work. Black Jewel was dissolved in late 2021, leaving 200 active mining permits in limbo. According to In These Times, the Black Jewel bankruptcy exposed long-running problems in the system to reclaim coal mines, which coal companies had agreed to fund. Sierra Club lawyer Peter Morgan complains coal states like Kentucky and Virginia are allowing new companies to operate in the former Black Jewel mines and transferring the permits. Many of the old Black Jewel sites have multiple issues with toxic waste dumps and landslides that surrounding communities are now forced to deal with. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a humanitarian disaster, with untold thousands of military and civilian deaths, in addition to an estimated 4.1 million refugees who fled Ukraine and another 6.5 million who are internally displaced. The nightmare for the people of Ukraine has also triggered fear around the world of an unthinkable nuclear war, either through accident or reckless decisions made during the adrenaline-fueled confusion of combat. As the U.S. and NATO confront Russia's aggression, Europe's most serious conflict since the end of World War II, for the first time the world's two most powerful nuclear-armed nations are virtually pitted against one another in war. Making the situation far more dangerous is the post-Cold War abrogation of U.S.-Russian nuclear arms control agreements. In 2002, President George W. Bush unilaterally withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. The Trump regime then abandoned the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 2019 and the Open Skies Treaty in 2020. Your reporter spoke with John Rainwater, Executive Director of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund, who talks about Russia's Ukraine invasion, the threat of escalation to nuclear warfare, and the urgent need for Washington and Moscow to renegotiate abrogated and expired nuclear arms control agreements. It's a somewhat terrifying prospect. Anytime two nuclear powers are uh, close to or engaged in a conflict, you have to be worried about nuclear war. And I think it's a a wake-up call that we've failed to address the threat that nuclear weapons pose to humanity. But in terms of the Ukraine conflict or war, accidents can happen. I mean, there there have been missile attacks within 10 or 15 miles of Poland that have killed dozens of people and had those missiles miss their target by just a, a little bit. They could trigger uh, 
NATO's provisions to have NATO enter the war, which would mean two nuclear powers facing off. So there's a lot of ways in which this could spiral out of control. And so far, uh, the Biden administration has not been escalating when it comes to nuclear talk. Really, what should be happening is that peace-loving people across this country and in other countries should be really vocal right now that we've got to back away from the nuclear brink here and tamp down any talk of, of nuclear weapons being used in this conflict. One of our concerns right now uh, with the Biden administration and arms control is that they're about to release uh, their nuclear posture review. This is something that that presidents do near the beginning of their terms, sets the tone for uh, nuclear policy, both in terms of U.S. policy itself and, and also gives a hint to what sorts of uh, agreements they might be searching for. And it, it's very disappointing what we're hearing um, in terms of declaratory policy of the United States. Biden had said that he supported a sole-use policy, which means that nuclear weapons would only be used for deterrence. Obviously, Peace Action wants to get rid of all nuclear weapons, but a step in the right direction would be uh, to make clear that we would never use nuclear weapons first. And Biden did not put that into uh, his nuclear posture review as he indicated he would during the campaign. So that's a huge problem, and that should get a lot of protests from folks, including those in Congress. There are a couple bills in Congress to uh, create a no-first-use policy, to, to mandate a no-first-use policy for the United States. And I think the Ukraine crisis shows why we need one, so that there's no mistaking the fact that the United States will not be the first to use nuclear weapons. So we should push for those bills. In terms of diplomacy, we need to get back to the table, ironically, with Russia eventually to have a follow-on agreement to New START before it expires, to have even deeper cuts in nuclear weapons with Russia. But we're seeing the opposite. The hint really is in the Biden budget where we're seeing a large increase in funding for nuclear weapons. And it's being justified by talk of uh, Russia invading Ukraine, which obviously is horrific, but not an excuse to beef up nuclear weapons. It didn't deter Putin from invading. Uh, spending more money on nuclear weapons won't. And China's being pointed to as well. So one of the first things we can do is oppose increases to spending on nuclear weapons, which are starving funding for things like pandemic prevention and dealing with climate change and those sorts of things. So we're seeing some bad signs in terms of U.S. playing a constructive role in nuclear disarmament, and we have to push against that in Congress and elsewhere. The U.S. peace movement since the end of the Cold War and more recently after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 has really been in hibernation. The peace movement generally, despite your good work, it's not out in the street. What in this very dangerous environment we're now in with the Ukraine invasion, what is the role of the peace movement in your view, and, and why should people get reactivated? We have the wrong security policy for the United States, and we need to connect with people and say, while we've been building up the Pentagon budget, a million people have died of COVID. We've got climate change 
wreaking havoc. And we need to bust the silos and reach across them and create a unified movement that says we need to reorient how we do security in this country and focus on human security, what keeps our community safe, healthcare, education, jobs, preventing and mitigating the impacts of climate change. I think that's uh, a new peace movement that we need that's not just about anti-war, but is about these other issues. But at the same time, I think people are seeing how horrific war is on their television screens in Ukraine. And we need to connect the dots so that people see uh, that what's going on in Ukraine is also going on in Yemen with the support of the United States supporting the Saudi coalition that's bombing in Yemen and, and say no wars, no more wars anywhere. That was John Rainwater, Executive Director of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund. Learn more about the group's work on nuclear disarmament by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. No matter which party is in power, the U.S. federal military budget continues to increase year after year after year. President Joe Biden's $782 billion budget for fiscal year 2022, which started October 1, 2021, was just passed by Congress. It includes billions for Ukraine military aid, more billions for the U.S. nuclear arsenal, and is $25 billion more than the Pentagon even asked for. Now Joe Biden has submitted his budget for fiscal year 2023, and it's $813 billion. Congress appears never to have encountered a weapon system it doesn't like and vote for. However, the Biden budget does cut funding for the F-35 fighter jet, which over the course of its decade-long life would rack up over a trillion dollars in expenditures. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Lindsay Kashgarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Here she runs down the numbers on recent Pentagon budgets and efforts to direct more federal funding to human needs. The president's request is for fiscal year 2023, which begins on October 1st of this year. So Congress just passed a $782 billion military budget, and President Biden is requesting for next year an $813 billion military budget. Uh, So that increase is significant. It's about $30 billion. And just for reference, that is twice the amount of the additional COVID aid that Congress just stripped from the budget they passed for the current fiscal year. Um, And that COVID aid would have been for things like antibody treatments, um, antivirals, vaccines, testing, um, because as we know, the pandemic is not yet over, but those are the things we need to bring it to an end. That's a very interesting, you know, comparison of numbers in that regard. But I'm also wondering, how does this budget compare either the current one or the one he Biden just proposed? How does that compare to the funding for the war in Vietnam, say, at its height? So the, the budget that Biden just proposed is higher than the military spending at the height of the Vietnam War um, and higher than the peak of the Cold War under President Reagan, which, uh, as folks who were around or study history know, was a tremendous years of military buildup during the 1980s under, under President Reagan. That is adjusted for inflation, yes. What are some of the things that, you know, the big uh, ticket items that are included in this budget that Biden is asking for? 
the vast majority of the, of the budget Biden is requesting is for the Department of Defense. But every year in recent years, about half and often over half of the Department of Defense budget has gone to for-profit contractors. Um, so a huge part of, of what he is asking for would go to, uh, to contractors to, to line their bottom line. And in fact, they recognize this, that every time military budgets go up, so do their bottom lines, um, so do their profits, so do their, you know, their shareholders gain value and things like that. And in fact, recently with the Ukraine crisis, we have seen so-called defense stocks uh, value just shoot sky high. Um, so they are having a, a moment right now, and that is a big part um, of where this budget would go. Uh, there are also some, you know, incremental increases in in things like benefits uh, and housing for troops, which are necessary, um, but that is not the majority of of what is is going into this budget. A big part of it also is going toward a planned sort of reinvestment in nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons delivery systems. Um, and that plan has gone back to at least the Obama years. Uh, they call it nuclear modernization. And so it's doubling down on nuclear weapons um, when we can clearly see with the, the threat coming from Vladimir Putin to use nuclear weapons that the world desperately needs to move toward denuclearization. So this is moving in absolutely the wrong direction. The U.S. spends more than, I think, the next 11 nations, including Russia, including China, on the military. Do I have that right? We, we spend more than the next 11 nations. That also includes, we spend 12 times more than Russia. So given that that conflict is kind of forefront on a lot of people's minds right now, that's, that's a fact worth knowing. Russia is in a very different place with their, their military investment than we are. They are doing some of the same types of, of new nuclear weapons that the U.S. recently started the program for what they call tactical or low-yield nuclear weapons that are slightly smaller nuclear weapons than the big ones that we hear and think about most, but they're still nuclear weapons. So they are doing some of the same things. I don't know if this is a, a long-term habit, but it seems like Congress is at least as likely to increase the amount as to give Biden what he's asking for. Is that, do you foresee that in this budget as well? Because that's what happened in, in the current year's budget. Yes, absolutely. That's very astute. That is what happened last year. Biden requested a certain amount, Congress added to it, and then they added to it some more. And that is a pattern. What can people do who think this is not, according to your organization, national priorities, shouldn't be our priority by such a huge amount? What can people do? Uh, well, you you need to call your member of Congress. They really do respond to constituent input. Um, so you need to you know call them and call them again. If you can ask for a meeting, that's great. But phone calls are are terrific. They're probably better than emails um, or other or other methods of reaching out. You can write local op-eds or letters to the editor if you're feeling particularly motivated. That's very helpful when uh, members of Congress see issues in their home district news media, that's that's very helpful. And another thing you can do is, is support the efforts of, um, there are a lot of groups that are working on this that have growing power. One of them is the Poor People's Campaign. Another is there's a coalition called the People Over Pentagon Coalition that we are a part of. That was Lindsay Kashgarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Find more analysis and commentary on U.S. military spending 
by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Millions of people across the country are growing frustrated and angry about Attorney General Merrick Garland and the U.S. Justice Department's apparent lack of action to investigate or prosecute Donald Trump and his inner circle that in plain sight planned the failed coup in January 6 insurrection that would have prevented the peaceful transfer of power after a presidential election for the first time in American history. In considering a case involving right-wing legal scholar and Trump coup architect John Eastman's attempt to shield his emails from House investigators, U.S. District Court Judge David Carter of Central California found that Donald Trump most likely committed crimes in his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. A recent New York Times story revealed that President Biden, too, is frustrated with Attorney General Garland. Biden was quoted as saying that he wanted the attorney general to act less like a ponderous judge and more like a prosecutor who's willing to take decisive action over the events of January 6th. Your reporter spoke with John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People. Here he explains why he's calling for the resignation of Attorney General Merrick Garland for his inaction in investigating and prosecuting former President Trump for his failed January 6th coup attempt. Well, I think we're in an existential crisis for our democracy. And the question is whether those who engaged in the insurrection on January 6th at the highest level will be held accountable or whether they will not, and whether Donald Trump and his associates are going to be held accountable for all other federal crimes they may have committed during the past several years. And this is a critical question for the rule of law and for the principles of our democracy. And I'm very concerned, as we all are at Free Speech People, that the Justice Department is not currently being led by someone who's up for the job. Merrick Carlin has had a long career as a federal prosecutor, a federal judge. But at this moment, at this time, at this crucial moment in history, uh, we do not believe that he should remain as attorney general, and, and we've called uh, for his resignation uh, some months ago because of the fact there's been no indication that he's ready to uphold his responsibility to apply the rule of law evenly and fairly to anyone, including a former president of the United States. And where we are now uh, going into this uh, new election year is the question of, of really uh, whether the Justice Department has continued to, to drag its feet and not hold uh, this former president accountable. Uh, but beyond that, there's the question of whether election officials all across the country who have a responsibility to determine whether or not people seeking to be on their ballot are qualified based on all the constitutional qualifications that are required, and, you know, whether they're going to apply that mandate with respect to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which makes clear that if you've taken an oath of office to defend the Constitution and then you turn around and engage in insurrection, 
you are forever barred from holding public office again. There are a number of people seeking to be on the 2022 ballot who are in that category of having taken oath of office to defend our Constitution and then engaged in the January 6th insurrection, and they must be barred from the 2022 ballot. And Donald Trump, if he seeks to run for president again, must be barred from the 2024 ballot. John, what specific steps would you like to see Attorney General Merrick Garland take to restore faith of many people around the country that steps are being taken to hold those former administration officials, including Donald Trump himself, for the crimes that they've most likely committed here? Well, what we called for right when he assumed office as attorney general on Mayor Carlin, what we called for was an independent task force that would be established at the Justice Department to investigate all federal crimes that Donald Trump and his associates have committed. Now, if in fact, you know, there's this mystery out there that somehow they've been doing that and and that's not uh, yet public, he ought to make that public. He ought to respond to these concerns that have now reached the front page of the New York Times and that are everywhere in terms of a discussion or the Justice Department and say, you know, we actually have been at it. We've been involved in investigating uh, the president and his associates for all federal crimes they've committed. He doesn't have to say where he's going with it right now, but just saying that would, I think, establish some trust that, in fact, uh, he's he's on the case. But all we're left with is these general, you know, vague notions that he'll take the facts and the law wherever it may lead. And yet, you know, we're we're a year plus after the insurrection. We have a threat to our republic who's in the name of Donald Trump presuming to try to run for president again and and there's no accountability whatsoever for what he just did on January 6th so I I think that would be step one but I but I do think he needs to reopen the the investigation in the U.S. Attorney's Office Southern District of New York and make clear that individual one who was named in that indictment will be prosecuted he, he needs to open and make clear there's an investigation to what Donald Trump did with the Secretary of State of Georgia and trying to overturn the results there. Uh, you know, he has to make clear that he's investigating the tax fraud that has occurred that the Manhattan District Attorney has refused to prosecute for, despite two veteran prosecutors being ready to issue an indictment. So they're not just state tax questions. Those are federal tax questions at stake. And the Justice Department has the power to prosecute federal tax fraud. So there's a lot that he could be doing to to showcase that he's on the case and that he's going to be the attorney general, regardless of where the chips may fall. He's going to enforce the law against everyone, including the former president. But so far, he's been showing that he's not that attorney general. And I think if he if he's not capable of doing that, he needs to step aside and have somebody else who is able to meet this moment in history. That was John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People. Find more analysis and commentary on holding President Trump and his inner circle accountable for their attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFI in Ithaca, New York, RECFM in Riverton, Maryland, WDRT in Faroqua, Wisconsin, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.